I'm the only thing standing between the American dream and total anarchy. I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. You're listening to Campaign Confidential, our special podcast series on the U.S. elections. A lot of people got rich and got powerful at your expense. Now, these same liberal hypocrites want to open up borders and let violent mobs rule the streets while they live in... This is Donald Trump, speaking last week in Pennsylvania, just days ahead of his Republican National Convention, which started Monday. They want to cancel you, totally cancel you, take your job, turn your family against you for speaking your mind while they indoctrinate your children. Is this a taste of what we can expect throughout the week from the Republican nominee? I'm Ryan Heath, author of Politico's Global Translations newsletter. Today, we'll take you to the Republican National Convention. Welcome to the 2020 Republican National Convention! And what a run-up to the party convention it has been. The location changed three times. It's time to cancel the Jacksonville, Florida component of the GOP convention will be starting in North Carolina for the Trump's Monday. former chief strategist Steve Bannon was arrested Friday. I, I am not going to back down. This is a political hit job. Everybody knows I love a fight. This was a tape of the president's sister, Marianne Trump Barry, calling Trump cruel, stupid, and a liar, was published Saturday. Change of stories, a lack of preparation, the lying, the holy shit. And then Kellyanne Conway, his 2016 campaign manager, announced plans to step down Sunday night. President Trump's longtime aide, Kellyanne Conway, said she would step down this month to focus on her family. We'll also dig deeper into Trump's supporters in the key state of Pennsylvania. And we'll see what the world can still learn from American political conventions. But first, let's bring in Meredith McGraw, White House reporter for Politico, who'll tell you everything you need to know about the Republican convention happening as we speak. Can I ask you, Meredith, what what is it like to cover Donald Trump? You know, you're in the White House briefing room a lot. You've been to Mar-a-Lago plenty of times. Give the listeners a sense of the president. I've been covering this administration from the get-go. And um, I would say despite him being everywhere on TV, on Twitter, there are still a lot of moments that surprise me and catch me off guard. You never know what's going to be around the corner next covering this president. It can be exciting and head spinning, too. He's really made a big shift politically in America in just a really short amount of time, which has been pretty extraordinary. And have you noticed any change in him at all, you know, whether it's tone or strategy as we move towards the election? Well, at times his tone has changed and we always joke about that in the newsroom. He'll have a moment where he sounds... We call it teleprompter Trump. I want to take this opportunity to thank all members of America's armed forces in every branch. Active. He's, you know, sticking to a script. Who stepped forward to help battle the invisible enemy, the new virus. But even those advisors will tell us that they really want the president to talk about things like trying to help the economy recover, trying to get through this pandemic, um, his plans for a second term. He really does often dig in his heels on issues that are important to his base. The state of the race going in is that Trump is clearly behind. Is there any difference between what the campaign says in public and what his advisors will tell people like you in private about where they think the race is at? I think it changes almost on a daily basis. There is 
an understanding that there's a lot of room that they need to pick up on. They're focused on a handful of states, and they really do need to make sure that the president pushes out his base. There is, I think, a sort of wait and see attitude at the moment, because they really don't feel at the moment that the American people have seen enough of Biden, that right now it's still just a referendum on Trump and really not a binary choice that uh, people are making. But they like to talk a lot of optimism. But um, at the same time, there are a lot of realists in there who say that, you know, there there is a lot of ground that they need yeah. to make up on. Yeah. And he, he did it before. He was in trouble a month out in 2016. So you never count the guy out. I mean, don't don't count him out. Exactly. Um, now, thinking about what approach Trump might take to the convention this week, we've been hearing a lot of talk about upbeat, optimistic content and speeches. And then we heard at the top of the podcast Donald Trump speaking in Scranton last week, and that was pretty dark rhetoric. Uh, do you believe the the optimistic Trump is going to be out in force, or will it be the the darker version? You're right. They're, I mean, they've talked a lot about what this wanting to be super optimistic and positive, and they're going to paint this rosy picture of what a Trump second term would look like. This president has a record of strength and success. We seek a nation that rises together not falls apart in anarchy and anger. America is the greatest country on earth, but my father's entire worldview revolves around the idea that we can always do even better. America, it's all on the line. President Trump believes in you. He emancipates and lifts you up to live your American dream. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty and the American dream, the best is yet to come. But it could be a lot of potentially bleak talk as well. Um, I think that's kind of obvious based on just who they've invited to speak at the convention this week. They're really capitalizing on things like the unrest we've seen in a lot of big cities. Democrats won't let you go to church, but they'll let you protest. Democrats won't let you go to work, but they'll let you riot. They'll disarm you, empty the prisons, lock you in your home, and invite MS-13 to live next door. What happened to George Floyd is a disgrace. And if you know a police officer, you know they agree with that, too. But we cannot lose sight of the fact that our police are American heroes. This is an election between a party that wants to burn down the foundations of our country to the ground and a party that wants to rebuild and protect our great nation. They've invited people like the McCloskeys from St. Louis who, you know, went viral for, you know, having big guns out on their front lawn and in St. Louis, um, when protesters came by. We're speaking to you tonight from St. Louis, Missouri, where just weeks ago you may have seen us defending our home as a mob of protesters descended on our neighborhood. America is such a great country that not only do you have the right to own a gun and use it to defend yourself, but thousands of Americans will offer you free advice on how to use it. So law and order is going to be a big thing. That has the potential, of course, to be very dark. Um, and I think it's hard for anybody left or right to paint a rosy picture of kind of what we're seeing across the country just with like the racial divides, police brutality, inner city crime. But the president and his campaign keep trying to say that 
all of this would happen in Biden's America, but this is happening right now in Trump's America. It just seems a little bit up in the air, this convention, what the Republicans will actually deliver. What are you looking out for or, or what, what have you noticed different between the two conventions? The Democrats were preparing for a virtual convention for a much longer time. And the Republicans were, you know, behind the ball. They were unsure about where it was even going to happen. Um, it was really sort of up to the last minute. I really do think it's so striking that, you know, former President George W. Bush isn't going to be speaking and former Republican nominee Mitt Romney is, isn't going to be speaking. There are a lot of big Republican voices that are missing, even some that are outspoken about Trump's behavior, but still vote in favor of his policies. Yeah, a lot of outsiders don't realize that he is almost the sole guiding force in the party these days. And and that brings us to the question of party platforms and second term agendas, which you've also been writing about. And for me, it was noticeable that the Republicans just abandoned entirely the idea of adopting a new party platform. But maybe that's a clever tactic because it's not like ordinary voters read them. You know, I think an incumbent, they're always running off of what they did. And there are certain things that they can can promise or say that they'll get done, but they're really just running off of their record. Um, one of the things that I think is kind of tricky for this president is the economy was his calling card for so long. And, you know, right now we're just in this incredible moment, of course, with the pandemic, but there's millions unemployed. Um, there are a lot of questions about, you know, people's everyday pocketbook finances that have a lot of people on edge. And it's going to be a much tougher case for the president to make. So a party convention is nothing if not the biggest rally of the year or the election cycle. And that's been Trump's go-to tactic to get those huge crowds in the room and feed off his audience. Do you think that that magic is lost in a pandemic when he can't gather people for five, six rallies a week like he did in 2016? That's definitely something that he's struggled with. And he's kind of struggled to recapture some of that same magic and momentum. And I think he's going to try to this week. But I do think, again, going back to my TV roots, there's always the potential issue of overexposure. And people have talked about the convention this week, um, having lots of surprises and unexpected twists. But when we have the president out there every single day, and when we get to literally read his thoughts on Twitter from morning until night, the big question is, how exactly is the president going to be able to capture people's imaginations at this moment? That's great. Thank you so much, Meredith. You're so welcome. Now, Let's talk about what motivates Donald Trump's support in 2020, specifically in must-win states like Pennsylvania. Uh, Tony Fratto, um, a, a founder of a firm in Washington, the firm's called Hamilton Place Strategies, which I, is a name I borrowed from the south entrance of the Treasury Department, where I worked for a number of years in the Bush administration. I was uh, Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs and, uh, and then Deputy Press Secretary at the White House after that. You know, I've been to a, a bunch of conventions, both Republican and Democratic conventions, and you know, the first few are fun, but boy, I'll tell you, it's, you know, it's not bad watching it from your couch. Tony knows what it's like to defend an unpopular Republican president. And these days, he's vocal on Twitter, expressing his frustration at the decline of civility and bipartisan cooperation in American politics. I never really 
called myself a conservative. You know, I was definitely very much a Republican. Some people were born born into the party. I, I joined it. I grew up in a uh, you know Italian American neighborhood in Western Pennsylvania. That you know, according to the voter rolls, was something like eight or ten to one Democrat to Republican. But truthfully, I never met a Republican until I was fourteen years old, and I was interested in economics. And there were some things about what Reagan was talking about at the time that did appeal to me, like this uh, idea of America's role in the world. Uh, I was interested in in trade. And it was a pro-trade party. And the third part is I'm a first-generation Italian-American. And people forget that the Republican Party was a pro-immigration party. So I joined. So I became a Republican. I wonder what is your take on the driving appeal in 2020 for Trump? Like, why does somebody vote for Trump in 2020? Yeah, that's it's a great question. Because the party has changed so much, right? On those, those three big issues that I just talked about. They're not in the party anymore. It's an anti-immigrant party. It's an anti-trade party. And it's seemingly indifferent to America's role uh, in the world. Judges, I think, is a, it was a very important issue in 2016, more than people understand. I know a lot of Republicans who said, I don't like Donald Trump, but I'm not going to let Hillary Clinton name the next Supreme Court justice and flip control of the Supreme Court. That issue stays today, even though, uh, you know, conservatives still have control. They do know that, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's time as a justice is uh, probably at risk. And so, you know, she has been battling health challenges. So the likelihood of another seat opening up is very likely. So that's that remains important. I'll tell you, Ryan, like here in this area where I am in southwestern Pennsylvania, a lot of coal uh, workers here. If you go talk to people in the coal industry here, which has been hit very, very hard over the past 15 or 20 years, and you ask them whether they think coal is coming back, they will tell you honestly, no, it's not coming back. So they know that when Trump says, you know, I'm going to bring coal back, they know coal's not coming back. What they like is somebody unabashedly telling them I'm on your side and I want to bring coal back. And with Joe Biden, do they see Biden as being on their side? Yeah, there's a concession that Joe Biden is a is a nice guy. Now, like you still have people who made the tribal choice to go on team Trump and they're they're clinging to it pretty hard, but I think the loosely affected voters and people I see this as there's nothing wrong with Joe Biden. You know, they're, they're, they're perfectly happy with Joe Biden. And in a state like Pennsylvania, that can make the difference. We actually have a short clip from a CNN panel and it's with swing voters from Pennsylvania where Joe Biden was born and where it seems his nice guy appeal will be needed. Right. But compromise is not a thing. Compromise? Yes. yes. You're you know, tired of the divisiveness. We yes. are. Absolutely. We are. I think most people in the country are. Yeah. Do you think that President Trump plays any role in that divisiveness? No. No. Yes. no. Do you think he's being helpful? I think he's being helpful, yes. How? How is he bringing the country together? I'm not sure how he's bringing the Democrats and Republicans together. However, I do think he's trying to get stuff done. I sense that Trump is struggling in part because his identity is so specifically that of a grieved outsider and everything is built up around that. And now the reality is he's the most powerful man in the world. And it's really hard to paint yourself as this victim outsider. The aggrieved part he still has down fairly well, though. 
right? I mean, he has he has aggrieved in in every way. I mean, everyone is out to get uh, Donald Trump. The uh, insider outsider, you're right. So you know, as an outsider, he could criticize an attack, which he did to great effect in 2016 and before. Um, now he owns these policies and he owns the results. And presidents can recover from bad things happening. You know, you can recover from differences on policy. You cannot recover from incompetence. And so they have been exposed on COVID as incompetent. And whatever your your views are on their policies, it's hard to look at this and say anything about this was handled in a professional way. Given all of that, what will it take for Trump to win in 2020? Uh, you know, he seems to be playing the same hand except doubling down on it. And I think that's true. I think it's obvious that's exactly what he's doing. He's not trying to expand the base. And he's has to go out and try to get those votes in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and North Carolina, Florida. And here was Trump playing to that base Monday as the convention kicked off. More years! More, more years! Now, if you want to really drive him crazy, you say 12 more years. We caught them doing some really bad things in 2016. Let's see what happens. We caught them doing some really bad things. We have to be very careful because they're trying it again with this whole 80 million mail-in ballots that they're working on, uh, sending them out to people that didn't ask for them. They didn't ask. They just get them. Now, let's take a step back and talk about what the world can learn from America's political conventions. COVID almost and other fractures in democratic societies are mobilizing people. They don't necessarily need a party convention to attend to be mobilized. This is Daniel Twinning. He's president of International Republican Institute, a nonpartisan organization that promotes democracy around the world. Our hope is that in America, like in any democracy, that the current circumstances aren't going to suppress turnout. And gosh, if there were ever a time when citizen voices should be heard, not just in America, but around the world. I mean, democracies are struggling in many, many places. And uh, the public health crisis really puts the point on the fact that it matters. Government really matters. Good government really matters. Here's more about what Daniel has to say about the conventions this week and last and what the world can still learn from America. What signal does having those conventions give to other democracies? What are, what are the lessons of it about how democracy is practiced? So part of what a convention does is further open up the political party nominating process to the public. And that includes lots of members of the, co- the public. I mean, conventions are not conducted by 10 rich guys behind closed doors. They're often quite raucous. They are full of state delegations. Uh, Every state in America will send delegations to its convention. And the conventions play uh, really a vital role in, as part of a democratic process, in kind of confirming the nomination and bringing political parties together around the nominees. Now, that's in a way that's less true for a sitting president like Donald Trump. In a way, it's more true for the Democratic ticket, the Biden-Harris ticket. And it's meant to give each party a boost, frankly. It's meant to be a sort of slightly made-for-TV drama that runs up ratings and gets people Mm -hmm. excited about the horse race in the fall. The world 
used to, in previous cycles, descend on the conventions and on election day itself and, and joining in with the campaigns because America is this great democratic laboratory and people would come to learn what the cutting edge was and adapt it back into their own environment. Are you finding ways to sort of continue your convention programming virtually? And, and do you think there will still be people able to learn from, from this U.S. election cycle? So uh, IRI and our sister institute, NDI, we are both holding events around the Republican and Democratic conventions, partly just to underline the role of effective American leadership in the advancement of democratic values in the world, in the advancement of sort of what Americans believe in, in a, a frankly, totally nonpartisan way. So we will be holding several virtual events, and that is one way for these foreign delegates who otherwise would be very actively attending uh, a U.S. political convention. That is one way for them to hook in. They are not going to get all the sideline conversations in the bar that they would normally benefit from, but they will be able to be part of various virtual conversations. Night one at the Republican convention was more dark than light. It's now clear that believing in your candidate is not the same as optimism. We also know that Biden's big tent approach to last week's Democratic convention failed to shift opinion polls. Then again, he's still eight to nine points in front, which is nothing to complain about. The question now is whether Trump can produce a boost by appealing to his base. Don't forget, voting starts in three weeks. In future episodes, we'll look at how the election could fall apart, the role of money, of tech, opposition dirt files, polling, and of course, the presidential debates. Join us every Tuesday through Election Day, November 3rd. Remember to subscribe to Politico's EU Confidential so you never miss an episode. The regular EU Confidential crew will be in your feed Thursday. And thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. I'm Ryan Heath, and I'll see you next week. Bye for now.